Good morning. Sort of ended that song a little more quickly than I anticipated. Sorry about that. I always know when Scott has been here to lead worship because I've got one of his songs stuck in my head for the next several weeks. So it's going to be one of those weeks, I guess. All right, my name is Joshua, and I'm one of the elders here at Prairie View. Every six or eight weeks, Ben takes a week out of the pulpit to get some other stuff done and pause and refresh, and that gives me and Jeff a chance to uh, share some of the some of the preaching. And this is one of those weeks. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark, looking at the life of Jesus. And we haven't been going through every single verse, but we've been uh, selecting certain, certain passages to look at. And uh, you're looking at some and setting aside others. And one of the dangers of that approach is that you can pick and choose a little too selectively. If you want to, you can present a skewed and distorted sort of funhouse picture of Jesus. And Ben has skillfully avoided that problem by taking one of the uh, passages that you might think would be a good one to skip, one of the one that might be more perplexing, challenging, maybe even potentially offensive. And instead of skipping it, he gave it to me to preach. So uh, pray for me this morning and uh, we should probably pray for you and for Ben also, I think. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this chance that we have to come before you to look at uh, the words that you have given us, words from your own mouth uh, that you considered worthwhile to have put in Scripture. Thank you for the chance that we have to um, open them and see not just what they meant at the time, not what they meant for the disciples, but what they mean for us, what you would have us take from this. Pray that you would be um, opening our hearts and uh, shining light in our eyes so that we can see what it is that you would have us learn this morning and how we are to respond. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. If you do not have a Bible with you, there should be one uh, underneath one of the seats and chairs in front of you in one of the racks. And uh, if you do not have a Bible at all, then we want you to take that one and take it with you and keep it. It is our gift to you. Two weeks ago, we were in chapter 7, and uh, we title that week was heart surgery. The idea was that it is from my heart and what flows out of my heart, that is what makes me unclean and defiled before God. There's nothing that I can do to polish up the outside or modify my behavior that can change my standing with God. Only God can change my heart. Last week, chapter eight, we sort of turned a big corner in the book. The title was I test. Uh, the question was whether we are seeing Jesus correctly, whether the disciples were seeing him correctly. We're born spiritually blind, but as God reveals himself to us, we can respond as we see more of him. Peter demonstrated on behalf of the disciples that while they could see that Jesus was the Christ, they could not yet see what it was that he came to do, what sort of Christ he was going to be. Their vision was not yet clear. They wanted him to come and rule and reign and receive the praise of men. So Jesus had to spend three chapters, eight, nine, and ten, telling them, no, that's not how it's going to be. This is the kind of life that I'm living. This is the kind of life I want my followers to live. And that's where we left off last week with that question. Are you willing to follow Jesus knowing that it will not make your life easier and it will not make your life any better, but it will be worth it definitely in the end? That leads us to verse 30 of chapter 9. Jesus has already told them once about his imminent death. And when we pick up in verse 30, he'll be telling them again for a second time. They went on from there and passed through Galilee from the north. They're making their way south to Jerusalem for the last time. He did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. 
but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. The disciples take the news slightly better the second time around. First time they had contradicted Jesus, told him that he was wrong. So this is at least an improvement in that regard. 33, they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? They kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now, if you're worried that the disciples aren't going to actually have any lines this week, um, John's going to come through for us in a big way in just a moment. Uh, he sat down and called the twelve. You know, formal teaching time. I'm the rabbi, you're the disciples. Sit down and listen, put on your thinking caps. He said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. For those of us that have heard this verse a thousand times, we can miss how surprising it is. First, he didn't bite their heads off, which could have been a legitimate fear of theirs because he'd come down hard on them a couple times in the previous couple chapters. But he was patient and restrained. If you're a fan of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, here he is. But keep a close eye on him because he's going to wander off and hellfire brimstone Jesus is going to show up in just a moment. But for now, he's telling the disciples how to be great. And that's the other surprising thing about this. He doesn't um, condemn them or say, don't want to be great or only God is great or you guys are so proud, bad disciples, go sit in the corner, think about how not great you are. No, instead, he tells them how to achieve greatness, how to get it. He never condemns their desire for greatness. He gives them a prescription for how to get it. If you would be great, be the servant of all. If you want true greatness, then you must be last and servant of all. And that sounds a lot like love your neighbor. Well, who's my neighbor? I mean, not everybody is my neighbor. So who's my neighbor? Let's draw some boundaries on this, establish some parameters so I know what I need to do and how far I need to go. You know, be a servant of all. I'm just one guy. I can't possibly serve everybody. What does he mean by this? So let's figure it out so I can get on with it and know what I need to do and start feeling good about myself. But if love your neighbor means anybody who needs a neighbor, love them, then be a servant of all means anybody who needs a servant, serve them, no matter how lowly or undeserving they are. Continue in verse 36. He took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, not, not just me, receives not me, but him who sent me. In our culture, we idolize children, at least once they're born. In the ancient Roman world, they, um, children were insignificant. They did not have any cultural status whatsoever. High infant mortality and a warped, deficient view of the dignity of human life meant the kids just weren't meaningful. You know, obviously, some parents loved some of their own kids, like we saw earlier with Jairus and his daughter. But in general, until they reached the age of adulthood, they just didn't matter. One more mouth to feed. But this isn't meant to be a uh, commentary on human life and uh, bearing the image of God. Jesus is going after something in our souls. The problem isn't wanting to be great. That's fine. He's telling us how to do it. The problem, the disciples' problem, our problem, is that we want to be greater, greater than the other guy, or better yet, greater than all the other guys. We want to be known as great. And Jesus says, if you want to be great, if you want to receive me and receive the Father, then be a servant of all, even children. Why would he use children as the illustration? I mean, to sacrifice time, energy, money, resources, and personal prestige in the service of a child is not 
going to help you get what you want if what you want is acclaim and recognition of others. That is, serving a child is not going to help you any. can't help you become the greatest of the disciples. There's nothing to gain from a human perspective. But serving a child can make you great in God's eyes. Receiving a child, receiving, embracing, bringing to yourself, taking care of a child— Doing that simply because you're a follower of Christ and you're serving your master, that kind of humble, self-denying service is the path to true greatness. And some of the um, godliest and strongest and greatest leaders that this church has ever had, guys like uh, Logan and Mazingo and Blaker and Aiton, all spent serious time over in Kid City. And that is no accident, I don't think. Now, the point here is humility. The key isn't children per se. There's nothing uniquely special about being born recently. The idea is the um, attitude and the posture and the motive. Serving those who cannot bring you honor, who cannot give you glory, who cannot profit you in any way except in the eyes of the Savior. Serve the disadvantaged, the outcast, the poor, the sick, the remote, and you will be great in God's eyes, doing it in the name of Christ, not for your own glory, but for his. So how do you think the disciples responded to Jesus' prescription for greatness. They probably didn't like it any more than I did the first time that I took a serious look at it. And so what do you do when you don't like the direction a conversation is going? You do what John did, and you change the subject. Verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. The first problem there is following us. You might be led to think from reading the Gospel of Mark that it's about following Jesus. But John seems to be bent out of shape because this guy, this nobody out there, is not recognizing the authority of John. The John, the son of Zebedee, one of the twelve, one of the three who went up the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciple that Jesus loved. Second, this smacks strongly of jealousy. Immediately before this passage, the disciples had tried to cast a demon out of somebody and failed. And Jesus had to come and bail them out. And now here's this somebody who's not with them, not following Jesus, but doing the work of Jesus in the name of Jesus and doing a better job than the disciples of Jesus. Who does this guy think that he is? John wants to shut him down. But Jesus is not going to be distracted from uh, what it is that he's come to teach them about. Continuing in verse 39, Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. This guy might not be part of our group. He might not be following us, but he's doing my work. You guys are still interested in your own glory, your own fame, your own reputation. And what matters is serving me and working for my glory. Humble service. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Don't think that greatness is measured by um, mighty works, great and amazing deeds, or having a high-profile ministry. No, the one who will be rewarded is the one who humbly serves. Those are in need. Anybody can serve a glass of water. And if that's what the situation calls for, then do it with a humble attitude. This is not just high-profile, special-occasion stuff. This is the day-in and day-out of our life. At home, at work, at school, in your neighborhood, and on Facebook, Jesus has placed you 
where you are with your circle of influence so that you can be a humble servant. That's the path that Jesus was on, and that's the path that he is calling his disciples to here. Uh, this week, Bethany wrote on Facebook about how somebody took her shopping cart back into the store for her. Nobody saw it. Nobody's going to reward that person. There wasn't anything in it for them. It was simply a simple act of service that... Um, she really appreciated and had no personal gain for the person that did that. Now, Jesus is going to flip it around and view it from the opposite perspective. What if you don't serve with humility? What if you meet a need, but with an eye towards your own personal gain and pursuing your own priorities? Or what if you ignore the situation entirely? What if through your behavior, you inadvertently or accidentally or on purpose lead somebody else into sin? The point that he's going to make is this. Your influence matters, not just in the here and now, but also for eternity. Continue into verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, whoever, whoever causes it, it would be better for him, the one who caused the person to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Practicing this this morning, Brianna said, Daddy, what's a millstone? Okay, big giant stone, man out of stone, wheel, sits on the ground. Another one just as big sits on top of it and is turned by a donkey round and round. You put the grain in, it gets ground into flour. The point is a giant big stone hung on your neck and sending you to the bottom of the ocean. These verses are Jesus speaking directly from his own mouth about the horrible consequences of sin. This is Jesus teaching about hell. Uh, speaking the truth about hell is... Unwelcome outside the church and unpopular inside the church. Outside, doctrine of hell is viewed as uh, cruel and outlandish and ridiculous, old-fashioned, unsophisticated, dangerous. The product of deranged and diseased minds or the uh, tools of fear used by um, religious oppressors to keep their followers in line. It is one of the enemy's uh, small and temporary victories that... Uh, one of the greatest pastor theologians that America has ever produced, Jonathan Edwards, is now mostly known in the culture for being that crazy guy from that crazy church who preached that crazy sermon about sinners in the hands of an angry God that you read in American literature textbooks. Inside the church, things aren't that much better. It's become fashionable to think of God's uh, sending people to hell as um, metaphor or myth or hyperbole or just awkward and inconvenient and unnecessary. But these are Christ's own words on this subject. So before we continue through them, I want you to know where we're going. Um, a couple weeks ago, we had Andrew Kohler here. He's our missionary in Ireland. He posted on Facebook this week a quote from Martin Luther uh, that I wanted to share with you before we get into these verses. Always preach in such a way that if the people listening do not come to hate their sin, they will instead hate you always preach in such a way that if the people listening to you do not come to hate their sin. They will instead hate you. I will have wasted your time this morning if by the time we hit verse 50, you do not just hate your sin, but you do not also that much more have a new amazement and awestruck perspective on uh, the Savior who saved us from this hell. Because this, this uh, torturous place that we are going to be talking about, that we try to avoid thinking about, this is what he saved us from. Ultimately, he saves us not just from you know, this broken world or a meaningless existence or our own bad choices. Jesus saves us from the wrath of God. We've already begun in verse 42. Whoever causes a little one to sin, it would be better for that person if 
The moment before they had caused somebody else to sin, they had died a horrible death. It would be better to die a horrible death than to live a moment longer and cause somebody else to fall into sin. Now, that person who sinned is going to be responsible for their own sin, but you are going to be responsible for leading them into sin. And uh, each person is responsible for their own sins. People in hell aren't being punished for sin in general, but for their own personal, specific, unique sins that they have committed in accordance with their quantity and severity. The sinner in hell would be better off if they had committed one less sin. And those who have committed many sins, willful sins, cruel and wicked sins, uh, sins that cause other people to sin, like sin with compound interest, each of those is going to be uniquely and specifically punished accordingly. God's justice is perfect and there is no crime that escapes his attention and we may not appreciate his delay in delivering that final justice but no one who has been grievously sinned against will ever have cause to complain about justice once it has been delivered let's continue on can't delay it any longer get into verse 43 if your hand causes you to sin cut it off it is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is plainly speaking about real people going to a real hell and suffering real anguish. He's giving this uh, as a real warning to people who claim to follow him. He's presenting a choice. You can choose your sin. You can have your sin. You can love your sin and forfeit life. Or you can wage war on your sin and go to extremes and do everything you can and more to expunge sin from your life and enter into Um, enter into life and enter into the kingdom. Jesus in this gospel has been giving sight to the blind. He's been restoring withered hands. He's been healing crippled legs. And now he's saying it would be better for those people to remain in their original broken condition and enter into life than to be healed and whole physically, but be spiritually damned. Not that we earn life by our degree of victory against sin. We've already established in chapter 7 that uh, this is a matter of the heart. Following Jesus is a matter of the heart, not external modification. It is God who gives new life and we respond to him. And it is in the heart that this war must be waged. If Jesus had meant for us to actually physically disfigure ourselves in the war against sin, then he would have added you know, that if your tongue causes you to sin, then cut it out. And Peter, let's start with you. Because Peter obviously would be one of the prime offenders, and uh, we can know that's not what he meant because he didn't line up the disciples and uh, give them the tools to accomplish what he seems to be, the physical tools to accomplish what he seems to be calling for here. Notice also that the punishment for sin is eternal. The fire is never quenched, and the worm never dies. Okay, why a worm? What does a worm do? It eats away from the inside. The picture is maggots in a wound eating away the flesh from the inside. The fire speaks of punishment from the outside, and the worm speaks of punishment from the inside. The uh, fully activated and completely self-aware conscience that is exquisitely aware of every sin that was ever committed and knowing that, you know, 
I alone am responsible for every decision that I ever made that uh, has gotten me to this place. Yet for as bad as Jesus makes hell sound, his emphasis here is actually on the contrast, on life, entering into life, into the kingdom. The word that Jesus uses for better, it would be better if. That word for better doesn't just mean more preferable, more advantageous. I'd prefer 10 rather than 8. It means more beautiful. It carries the weight of beautiful. It would be more beautiful, more pleasing, more fitting, more right to enter into life maimed because you're entering into the kingdom of God and it's worth it. The emphasis is on the richness of life with God. That's what makes heaven so wonderful. It's where we get to be with God as we were meant to be. That's what makes hell so terrible. It is the consummation of the rejection of our holy creator, God. So instead of enjoying the eternal presence of God as a friend, instead the person in hell has to endure the eternal presence of God as an enemy. Why? Uh, Sometimes we talk about uh, hell as a Christless eternity, but that wouldn't be at all objectionable to somebody who didn't want Christ in the first place. And to reject Christ carries a tremendous penalty because Christ is the revealed fullness of God's glory. Hell must be eternal, infinite in duration, because it is the consequence of rebellion against an infinitely holy, pure, and righteous God. And that's what makes hell seem over the top ridiculous to us. We still live in that middle space where we have spiritual life and we have some spiritual sight, but we are still handicapped by the corruption of our flesh. We don't yet understand how exceedingly and surpassingly holy and glorious God is. And so we don't perceive how terrible our sin is. If we could see God more clearly, then we would be more repulsed by the sinfulness of our sin and we would be more drawn to our Savior. Preaching about the horrors of hell is always incomplete uh, if it doesn't serve to make us more amazed by the Savior who took our sin upon us because this is what he went through for us. The unrepentant sinner carries all the weight of their sin into hell, but the repentant sinner is already pure before God because that sin has already been punished. When Christ went to the cross, he took our sin upon himself. He paid an eternity's worth of hell for us, for all the sins that all his people would ever commit. The more clearly we see God, the more clearly we see the rightness of hell, and the more clearly we see hell, the more amazed we can be by the love of our Savior, because he humbly served us so that we could be reconciled to God and avoid an eternity of his wrath. So, where does Jesus go from here? Coming out of verse 48, what does he do? He throws out two verses that are indisputably hard to understand. I've always been puzzled by these verses, and so I've always listened and collected uh, various pastors and preachers' takes on this, and I've come to the conclusion a lot of them have been confused as well, because a lot of different things that people say about this. I think we can make some sense of it this morning. Verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. What in the world? Okay. Jesus, I think, intends for his line about being salted with fire to have a double meaning. Mark's Roman audience would have immediately recognized this as the Roman method of destroying a city. Not just conquering and subjugating, but when they really had it in for somebody, they really wanted to wipe you out, they would burn your city to the ground, and then they would plow salt into the ground so that nothing could ever live or grow there again, being salted with fire. And it is a picture of the complete, permanent, 
ongoing destruction of the person in hell, the sinner in hell that Jesus had been talking about. But both salt and fire are multi-purpose tools. Uh, read that salt had over 100 different unique uses in the ancient world. And Jesus is playing on those multiple meanings. The wicked are salted with fire for the purpose of eternal destruction. But God's own people are salted with fire for purification and preservation here and now. To this day, salt is used as a preservative agent, extending the useful life of food that is being cured by it. And we use fire to uh, refine metal to a higher degree of purity and to uh, protect against corrosion and rust. As disciples of Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit in us, making us salty, preserving us through trials and purifying us over time and causing us to have the same effect on others. We can help people actively pursue their walk with Christ by sharing the beneficial effects of salt and fire with each other. He is calling us not to grow lax in our desire to grow in him. If we lose our saltiness, if our fire dims, then our uh, influence is diminished and our service is impaired. We become a hazard to each other, like the disciples arguing in verse 34 and then uh, picking a fight in verse 38 and leading other people into sin in verse 42. And Jesus says, don't, don't lose your saltiness. Don't let the flame of spiritual life grow cold within you. Don't be complacent about waging war on the sin in your life. Don't give up on achieving true Christian greatness through humble service. And don't lose sight of our amazing Savior and the fullness of life with him, even if the cost is high. So that's what Jesus says in verses 30 through 50 of chapter 9. And I've given you the most general of applications. And hopefully as you've heard it and read through the scriptures, the Holy Spirit has been at work in you to bring to your mind specific applications. But in case um, you missed the memo, what he was doing, I've got three potential specific applications that if you want to make sure you have a takeaway from this sermon, perhaps one of these will be helpful. First things first, receive Christ. When Jesus put the child in their midst and said, receive one such a child, he embraced the child. He put his arms around him and he embraced him. And that is a physical picture of what it means to receive Christ. It is the embrace of the whole soul. It is not just a mental assent to the facts about Christ, but it is the loving response of the heart and it is the obedient response of the will. Embracing Christ by faith includes repentance and confession and obedience as well as belief. We talk about uh, receiving Christ and receiving the gift of salvation and sometimes the way we use that language can make it sound like you, you receive it, unwrap it, set it on the shelf and never have to deal with it again. We've all had that experience probably of receiving a gift, unwrapping it, opening it up, staring at it, trying to figure out what is this, and then slowly realizing, I know what this is. This is a terrible gift. This is no good. Why would somebody give this to me? This is ridiculous. Um, I really, really hate slugs. And uh, like they're slimy and sneaky and disgusting. I really do not like slugs. So high school Aaron, in a misguided attempt at humor, gave me this enormous stuffed plush slug as a birthday present. Now, young ladies, take note. The culture will tell you that uh, food and sex are the ways to capture and keep a man's attention, but this is where it's at, right here. Disgust him, and he will be yours forever. This is how I knew that, that she was a keeper. Why do I keep it covered up? Because he's creepy, and I don't want him staring at me for the rest of the time. I haven't looked at that thing in over 10 years. Because she gave it to me, 
I opened it. I realized, oh, she's trying to be funny, and it kind of is a little bit. You put it in this closet. You shut the door. You don't think about it. Comes time to move to a new house. You open that box. Oh, it's that box. Tape it up. Move it to the new house. Forget about it again. Okay, receiving Christ is not like receiving a stuffed slug that you receive, hate, set aside, put away, forget about. Receiving Christ is more like receiving and embracing your spouse as your spouse, loving her, marrying her, devoting your life to her good. That's what it is to receive Christ, to embrace him, take him to yourself, and make your whole life about him. So if you haven't already receive Christ, and if you have already started that journey, continue pursuing your relationship with him. Second, what do we do with our ongoing temptation and sin? What if we know we have done wrong, we are doing wrong, and we're going to be tempted to continue to do wrong and um, expose ourselves potentially to the wrath of God? What if we have strong desires for something? It's simply wrong. I, I want this. I want this badly, but it's wrong. What do we do with that? At the risk of sounding uh, simplistic and redundant, the more clearly we see Jesus, the more we will grasp the sinfulness of sin. Paul, over in 2 Corinthians, if you still have your Bible open, flip there. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 speaks about this. He says in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, and we all with unveiled face, that's Paul's language for corrected spiritual vision. Mark talked about the eye test and spiritual vision. Paul says unveiled face. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. The more we see him, the more we become like him. Transformed from one degree of glory into another. Step by step, becoming more and more like the Savior as we see him more and more clearly. We are transformed into his likeness by seeing him better. Whatever it takes for you to deepen your relationship with God, pursue that. Whether it's um, Bible study or prayer, accountability, small groups, going to conferences, worship music, nature walks. Don't neglect any of those, of course. But whatever it is that is uniquely special for you, that helps you grow with God, then pursue that and make that a priority. For me, in all seriousness, it's the study time and preparation with a deadline. Small groups on Monday night, I'm preaching on June 2nd, that dedicated time of study and looking at the moon. For Aaron, it is uh, seeing the image of God's creativity reflected in uh, other people, using their creative gifts to solve problems or create something with skill and beauty. Whatever it is for you that makes your heart sing with worship, pursue that. We weaken the grip of sin in our lives by strengthening our relationship with the Savior. Of course, it's hard work to face your sin and root it out, but it's uh, only possible through a growing walk with Christ. Third and last possible application. What do you do when you're reading the Bible and it is hard? When you're reading the words of Jesus and you think, this guy, I have no clue what he's saying. I was following along and then things got fuzzy and then all of a sudden I'm completely lost. What is he talking about? I've already mentioned that that passage in Mark has perplexed me for years. I had an excellent Christian upbringing. I've been following God for 25 years, and it still took me four weeks to untangle this mess in Mark chapter 9. And I had plenty of help from Aaron, and based on these 30 minutes, you might say that I needed another month's worth of effort to, uh, to make it presentable. In verse 32, the disciples did not understand what Jesus was saying, and they were afraid to ask. 
And it does not have to be that way for us. The key this morning was humility, and that is the key to your response in that situation. Humbly come before God and say, I do not understand. This does not yet make sense. Help me understand. Spend time studying that passage. Look at the context, where it sits within its book, within the flow of Scripture, within the whole Bible. Um, Dig into it. Not everything is going to come quickly and easily. It's a challenging book sometimes. If you don't have a study Bible with study notes and cross-references, then find one online, get an app, get one that's like actually still on paper and stuff, because they are exceedingly helpful. Follow those cross-references in the margins wherever they take you, even if they go back into the Old Testament. If you got those study notes at the Bible, don't be too quick to jump down to them. They're helpful, but you want to be strengthening your own spiritual muscles and not always going for uh, the crutch. Is there somebody in your life that you can ask for help? And the answer is yes. If you were hearing me speak, then Ben or Jeff or me, your small group leader, or any of the other elders would be happy to help you understand something out of the scripture, even if our first response is, I don't know either. We have to get back to you on that. Okay, it is hard to go to God, to go to somebody else and say, I don't get it. Can you help me, please? But that humble first step is the first step on the path to understanding. Keep at it. Hold your conclusions loosely. Be prepared to disagree with others with civility. But above all, maintain that posture of humility before God. It is the same Holy Spirit that gives life to our hearts and gives spiritual sight to our eyes that illuminates the scriptures to our minds. And that doesn't happen with a magical zap to the forehead, but through the simple God-ordained means of study, prayer, reading, and struggling through it with others. Let's wrap this up with one cross-reference of our own. Go to James chapter 1, if you're still having your Bible open. James chapter 1 and verse 27. What we have spent 35 minutes discussing, what Mark took 19 verses to talk about in chapter 9, James, the brother of Jesus, boils down to a single verse. Chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world, serving those in need and purity before God. Last week, Ben closed with a reference to cross-shaped discipleship. What is a cross-shaped disciple? Shape of a cross, you might be familiar with it. It's a vertical beam supporting the weight of a horizontal crossbar. The vertical beam is your relationship with God. Pursue, strengthen, cultivate that relationship with God. Sin will corrupt that relationship and defile it and darken it. So keep your relationship with God pure. Go to whatever extreme to get rid of sin in your life and keep yourself unstained from the world. And the strength of your relationship with God will support the weight of the crossbar, the horizontal part, our relationship with each other. That's what we've been talking about this morning humble service of each other, pursuing cross-shaped discipleship through serving others humbly and humble obedience to God. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction. See a need, meet a need. When somebody needs a neighbor, be a neighbor. When somebody needs a servant, be a servant. In this way, we can be great in the service of our Savior. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have given us these words that you saw fit to have uh, Jesus speak them 
and to have the disciples hear them and record them so that we can always benefit from them. I pray that um, they would be helpful in the way that they have been presented this morning, that they would help people not just see their sin, but hate their sin more because of how offensive it is before you. But not just that, not just to be thrown into despair by the ongoing sinfulness of our lives, but to see our Savior that much more clearly, that what he went through on the cross was for us so that we could be reconciled to you and spared from an eternity of your wrath. Please awaken our hearts, give us life, give us sight, help us see your son Jesus more clearly, help us love him more purely and follow him more faithfully, and help us this week to be looking, seeing, and meeting the needs of others as you bring them to our attention and going to whatever length to be pure before you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.